Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. John Pfeffer, in his dystopian novel Splinterlands, looks ahead to life on planet Earth in the year 2050. The signs of this breakdown, if we observe what is happening, are already apparent. Pfeffer follows them to their logical conclusion. The climate is at war with the human species and every other species. The European Union, overrun with climate refugees, has disintegrated. China and Russia have folded in on themselves, as has the United States, where fractious and violent militias and gangs battle over diminishing resources. Because Washington, D.C. was destroyed by a hurricane and is underwater, the nation's capital has been relocated to Kansas City. Splinterlands with wry black humor is told by the octogenarian geopaleontologist Julian West, mortally ill from one of the latest pandemic variants. He is battling what time he has left to write the follow-up to his best-selling 2020 monograph, also called Splinterlands, in which he analyzes the social, political, and environmental disintegration. This is a Mad Max world of water wars, imitation foods made from seaweed, inequality, disease, and sleeper terrorists. Wes in the book takes one last virtual reality trip to make amends with his children. Professor Aurora in a deteriorating Brussels rampant with kidnappings, wealthy opportunist Gordon in Xinjiang no longer part of China, and his estranged son, who is a mercenary in prosperous Botswana. His ex-wife, Rachel, who he also visits, lives in a commune in northern Vermont, now lush with orange groves and a climate that resembles Southern California. Joining me to discuss his book and where we are headed is the novelist and playwright John Pfeffer, co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies and a fellow at the Open Society Foundations, and I should add also playwright. Um, but let's begin, because I, I, I love the book. As I told you, I thought the footnotes were hilarious, uh, having spent a lot of time with pedants um, who actually hate the subject they wrote their PhD on. But they're very funny. Don't miss them when you read the book, which is beautifully written. Uh, but let's talk a little bit, because you really begin with the fissures that are already around us. That's correct. And, you know, it was an extrapolation, a worst-case scenario, if you will, uh, but also cautionary. I mean, this is a book that is not designed to, to you know, glory in the, the horrors, but to send a message that unless we address these uh, horrific trajectories that we are on, we will continue down them toward uh, the necessary endpoint. Uh, and it's not too late. I mean, that is another message from the book. We can address climate. We can address the worst ravages of nationalism. Uh, we can address political polarization. Um, of course, the book doesn't provide us with a, a blueprint on, on how to do so, but there are two other volumes in the trilogy that attempt, at least in some small way, to explore those other opp opportunities and alternatives. And yet the forces that have us in their grip these corporate forces, which it, I'm not going to ruin the end of the book, but certainly determine the the life of the protagonist. Um, these are forces that are uh, bent on exploiting the crisis uh, uh, and in many ways exacerbating. 
Absolutely. But of course, they don't see themselves as that. They see themselves as saving the world. Now, uh, how they define the world is an entirely different matter because for this particular corporation, which is called the CRISPR Corporation, devoted to genetic edit editing, uh, sees itself as saving a small portion of humanity, uh, the richer, shall we say, the 1%, and giving them even longer lifespan. Uh, but in order to do that, well, the resources are not available, of course, to save all of humanity. So they have to be rather ruthless about some of the policies and some of the drugs that they manufacture. And that leads us to, of course, the denouement of the novel itself. What you're really describing is a kind of a third uh, world environment that envelops all of us. Um, I live, for instance, in Lima, Peru, in Miraflores, which looks like Miami, except the walls are higher and have concertina wire 10 blocks away. Uh, shanty towns are uh, crowded around open sewers without running water and electricity. Um, but, but, and I think that's right, that you have these kind of gated compounds where people have access to security and water and food and medical assistance. Uh, and then outside those gates, it's kind of the world of the proles. Unfortunately so. And in part, that's because, you know, the lifestyle of the middle class, of the, the global north, if you will, is frankly unsustainable. Uh, we cannot uh, live according to our means as we have defined them, given the resource base of this planet. Now, either we decide in some rational way to distribute the wealth in a fair and equitable manner, or we will see uh, our global north reduced uh, against our will, so to speak, uh, and brought down to the level of the third world, of the global south, with the exception of these compounds, of the rich. Uh, now, in the book itself, there's an irony here, of course, because the, the compound that we are most familiar with in the book is called Arcadia. And it seems like you know the best of California progressivism. Uh, it is growing its own food. It has a cooperative kind of uh, political structure. We're about in Vermont. Exactly, in yeah, northern they, Vermont. They, they also have an arsenal. <laughs> exactly. They have an arsenal because in this world of uh, diminishing resources, it's dog-eat-dog. -dog. And there are a lot of contending forces that are well-armed that if they see that you have food, if they see that you have security, they are going to target you. And so... Arcadia is very well armed and willing to defend itself. I was born in St. Johnsbury, and my parents lived in Barnet Center, which is exactly where this is located. Uh, it's on the border with Canada, and you have, I think, they're Quebec separatists, armed groups of Quebec se separatists making border crossings. That's right. That's right. And, you know, as you said, the United States has basically fallen apart. Um, all of the fissures that we see today uh, have simply grown wider. And they're not just political fissures. I mean, these are also geographic features. Uh, California has broken away, Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, you know, we see that today buried, you know, between beneath the headlines. We see that there has been separatist groups that have emerged in Texas that would like to go off and create their own Red Republic, uh, as well as the bluest of blue uh, in California that would like to create what they think of as a progressive utopia. 
all of which contributes to a fragmenting of the United States, very similar to the fragmenting of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Of course, that those were I was there. That, those were broken down along ethnic lines. Um, these are broken down around what lines? Well, they're broken down largely along political lines uh, because you know this is the United States where we have had these culture wars and pit, you know pitted battles between uh, political tendencies now for several generations. They've, of course, become accentuated uh, during the Trump years. Uh, but here in this book, we are seeing uh, a kind of uh, pitched battle between the left and the right, uh, between blue states and red states, uh, between um, conceptions of what the national government should be, what the federal government should be. In other words, extreme libertarians who do not want the federal government in their lives and those who are still wedded to some sense of national unity, however they understand that. And that ultimately becomes the, the biggest dividing line here in the United States. I want to ask whether it's, it is between red state and blue states or whether it's between rural and urban. I covered the war in Yugoslavia and in fact, if you looked closely, the conflict was between rural and urban. That's absolutely true. And, and that has been updated uh, into the modern era or the post-Cold you know, post, post War era into what, I, what I've extrapolated from the, the expression Poland A and Poland B. Poland A and Poland B is, is how the Poles refer to the divide largely between urban and rural that has emerged between those who have benefited from the reforms that have taken place post-1989 and those who have not. And yes, there's an urban elite that have done very well as a result of privatization and other neoliberal reforms in the country. And then there are the folks who are, you know, who used to work in factories in the countryside, they're small farmers, they're retirees and pensioners, have not done very well at all. That divide has produced a conservative backlash in the country. The Law and Justice Party have been in power now for several uh, years. We see a similar divide in, in Hungary, between Hungary A and Hungary B, again, between those who have benefited from the liberal policies and those who haven't. Uh, I would say that, frankly, we have seen that at a global level. Uh, there's globalization A and globalization B, those who have benefited from globalization, which to a certain extent is neoliberalism writ large, and those who haven't. And we have the same phenomenon here in the United States. A tremendous number of people feel as if they simply have not benefited from what you know, has been billed as a greatest you know, economic recovery, say, uh, from the financial crisis of the late 2000s. Uh, they haven't seen those benefits. Uh, they, have, they may not be unemployed, but they're working two, three jobs. Very difficult to make ends meet. So yes, this conflict between urban and rural is, I think, far more important than blue state or red right. state because we see it within states as well. Well, in fact, life is worse. I mean, my mother's family all comes from rural Maine and it's these towns are decayed ruins. The mills are all gone. Uh, you, you talk about political apathy. You write the electorate collaborated in its own disenfranchisement. In the public's view, all politicians were corrupt all civil servants inept, and every government little more than a mafia plus an army. Once the public had been persuaded to cut the state down to size, the real 
mafias took over. It reminds me of Karl Popper, who wrote that first you have a mafia economy and then you have a mafia state. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could say it better than I wrote it, but um, <laughs> oh, that was all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, this is this is a concern that people are seceding from society. Uh, that that's what apathy has amounted to in the last generation or so. They no longer see themselves as part of a commonwealth. They no longer see government as uh, a representation of us. It's rather a representation of them, of the looters, of the corrupt. Of course, it's not just a phenomenon here in the United States. Why did Bolsonaro win in Brazil? I mean, this, the critique of mainstream politicians and of politics as in general has led to an enormous secession. And that secession is economic to boot. I mean, for instance, people have seceded from public education. They send their children to private schools. They have seceded from the communities. They, don't, they do as much as they can to avoid paying taxes. They build their own private garrisons, uh, you know, huge gated estates with security forces. Again, something we are familiar with in the global south, but increasingly so in the United States as well. So this secession from society is an extraordinarily troubling phenomenon. And, you know, it, it's often described as simply apathy, political apathy, but that doesn't quite get at the at the potential violence and aggression that that this secession really amounts to. I'm going to read one of your footnotes. It's my favorite part of the book are your footnotes. Um, you write the debate over the so-called clash of civilizations obscured an essential point. Most of the clashes in the Middle East, I spent seven years there, were taking place within civilization. I thought it was actually a pretty important point. This was a, a major critique, of course, of Huntington's thesis yeah, yeah. of Clash of Civilizations when it came out that, you know, there were seven or so major civilizations and that the primary wars were uh, occurring along the fault lines between these civilizations. But in fact, you know, uh, that never made sense. I mean, if you looked at uh, the, the Islamic world, the Islamic world was hardly a unified civilization yeah. with Shia and, Shia and Sunni. Uh, fighting against one another, but you could find the same kind of fissures throughout these so-called civilizations. Um, and it obscured a, a very important um, set of debates that were taking place, uh, often violent debates that were taking place in the global north as well as the global south. It obscured these debates. It was, it was ultimately like, you know, Fukuyama's end of history, a thesis that was so... Uh, so wrong on the face of it that you had to ask yourself, well, why are people investing any kind of uh, authority in, in these statements? There has to be some other reason because on the face of it, it has no intellectual legitimacy. Therefore, it must represent something else. It must be, it must signal somehow a deep, um, anxiety on the part of, of uh, thinkers and politicians, anxiety about what's happening in their societies that they are averting their eyes from. And this becomes a kind of compensatory mechanism in some sense, an, an intellectual construct that they can invest their, their hopes and dreams in and uh, their intellectual credibility to, uh, to avert the gaze uh, their own and the gaze of their followers from what's really happening underneath societies. Well, it also fuels this rampant militarism. You know, our civilization, which of course is posited as superior, must dominate the barbarians. It didn't end up too well for Rome. 
No. And, you know, there's, there are a couple of very interesting books that have come out recently about the so-called liberality or liberalness of the English empire, that somehow the English empire was more uh, liberal, more tolerant, uh, more progressive than its uh, other colonial uh, competitors, whether we're talking about the Belgians in Congo or the Spanish, the Germans, the French. But that wasn't, in fact, true. I mean, the, the British were just as violent. They were the ones that, you know, uh, expanded on the notion of concentration camps. They came up with surveillance systems, torture. They were extraordinarily brutal, and they actually produced a, a violent legacy that they passed on to post-colonial states. Uh, but this notion of British liberality that is so, you know, uh, wonderfully described, if you can put it that way, by Neal Ferguson in his books on empire, were, were completely bogus. And so it did, in the same way, obscure the violence that lay beneath uh, imperial conduct, in the same way that our supposed liberality here in the United States or in Western Europe also obscures much of the violence that we're perpetrating. And again, not just in Afghanistan or Iraq, which is the obvious places, it's, it's the easiest places to see, but violence in a structural and systemic way within our own societies. Well, this is the mantra of the neocons, liberal interventionists from Samantha Power to Robert Kagan to uh, that it, what do they call it, benign hegemony or something. Yes. But it's, of course, completely untrue. You've spent many years abroad, as have I. Um, I've, I've spent 20 years reporting on the outer reaches of empire and from Central America to Iraq. Um, you target uh, the year 2023. I always find this very brave. When the dollar <laughs> fell from its perch as a global currency, the U.S. government went into receivership and its vast overseas military footprint became unsupportable. Um, uh, Alfred McCoy and others have cited, we know what happened to the British Empire when the pound sterling was removed as the world's reserve currency in the 1950s. It's not conjecture, um, but it is an important point. Perhaps you can discuss it. Sure. And uh, I mean, first I'd say, you know, back in 2016 when the book was published, 2023 seemed impossibly <laughs> far away. So I could safely make all sorts of predictions. And, you know, I, I've written about futurologists and the dangers of futurology. Uh, none perhaps more uh, salient than George Will's prediction that the Berlin Wall was going to live forever, right. which he published, which he wrote two or three days before the Berlin Wall fell, but which was published, I think, actually afterwards. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> like Lenin. <laughs> Lenin will never see the revolution in our lifetime or something, and six weeks later. Exactly. So back in 2016, of course, I set the book in 2050. I thought, well, I'm safe there. But there were we had to put in some events between 2016 and, and 2050. 2023 seems safe enough. Um, and the hegemony of the dollar, well, you know— uh, I thought that maybe in the 2020s we would see this, in part because there were expectations that the Chinese economy would at that point surpass the United States, uh, both in real value but also uh, just in, in terms of its size, um, that uh, you know, the, the huge debt of the United States would, would finally start to bear uh, fruit, um, poison fruit in this case. So I thought 2023, that seems like a reasonable date, that uh, the the mechanism by which the United States has basically maintained its its hold over the global economy 
uh, and through the supremacy of the dollar, that this would would come to an end. And it wouldn't necessarily come from one day to the next, but it would be a kind of gradual uh, kind of uh, overtaking of the dollar by a basket of currencies, whether it's the euro or the yuan. Um, and of course, I didn't anticipate that cyber uh, currencies, cryptocurrencies would, would become important. But, uh, but to understand the mechanism of U.S. decline, I think you really have to understand uh, how the United States has maintained its perch through its control of the global economy. It's not just the currency, of course. It's through our uh, control, our, our, our you know, hegemony, if you will, uh, in the IMF and the World Bank over international institutions, how we write the rules. And if you write the rules, well, you can write those rules to benefit yourself. Now, at the time, I didn't think that China would actually be constructing its own parallel international economy effectively. I mean, in those early days, I mean, we saw, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative emerging from 2013 on. But at that point, I still thought, well, there'll be a competition and China will is aspiring to have more say, for instance, the World Bank and the IMF. It, it's, it's building up the BRICS as a kind of uh, unified effort, you know, to challenge the United States. I didn't think that China would, would go to such lengths to, to create its parallel economy. And I think that ultimately will prove the decisive factor in terms of the unseating of the United States, because it will be uh, China writing the rules effectively, and the sphere that it creates simply enlarging. Uh, well, the dollar will clearly drop in value significantly. Yes. Uh, the treasury bonds, which sustains the debt, will no longer be attractive as an investment. I mean, it would be yeah. devastating. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's the bill will come due. Uh, you know, we can talk about it in terms of carbon footprint, you know, in terms of the United States living unsustainably. But even before climate change became an issue and, and you know, we were all obsessed with uh, carbon footprints, it was clear that the United States was living beyond its means, that uh, we American citizens, each and every individual, was uh, was kind of drawing on the global resources at a far faster rate than anybody else in the world, and that this was simply unsustainable. Unsustainable, not simply from a, a climate point of view, but unsustainable in terms of the rest of the world's people accepting it. Uh, and you know, the, we have been challenged, obviously, uh, by even our our European competitors, but it was really going to be India, China, Brazil, populist countries in the global south that are simply going to say, no, not going to allow American citizens, we're not talking about the government per se, but American citizens to draw so much. It's like, you know, drawing from groundwater, you know, and, and everybody else has tiny little narrow straws and we have a big gulp straw and we are just drawing it in huge quantities and the rest of the world is simply not going to take that. So this is a description which seems uh, pretty current. Domestic politics remain divided as Congress and the executive branch congealed like two pots of cold oatmeal. Neither they nor the various states of the union could establish a consensus on how to re-energize the economy or reconceive the national interest. Up went higher walls to keep out foreigners and foreign products. 
With the exception of military affairs and immigration control, the government's role dwindled to that of caretaker. The country experienced an epidemic of mega assault rifles, armed personal drones, and weaponized biological agents, all easily downloaded at home on 3D printers. Though many refused to acknowledge the trend, our society drifted into a condition closely approximating psychosis. Uh, an increasingly embittered and armed white minority seemed determined to adopt a scorched earth policy rather than leave anything of value to its mixed race heirs. Today, of course, the country exists in name only for the policies that really matter are all enacted on a local basis. That's clearly where we're moving. Unfortunately, I, you know, I, I was influenced, I think it, it, it was around the time I was writing this, when, when Obama said, you know, I should not have been elected uh, in 2008. That was a fluke. I really, uh, the only shot I had, demographically speaking, in terms of the transformation of the electorate, would have been in 2028. Uh, and I, I thought about that, you know, deep and hard, because uh, it was clear that the Republican Party was a, a minority party, that it was clinging to power in various, by various mechanisms uh, to forestall the day uh, that a Barack Obama could be elected. And again, he was elected earlier than anyone anticipated, or a Barack Obama figure was elected earlier than anyone anticipated. But the question is, uh, much like our discussion of the United States and whether the United States is willingly going to give up its, its global hegemony, is the Republican Party going to be willingly uh, giving up its political hegemony within the United States? Increasingly, as we've seen, it's not willing to do so. Uh, much as you know, the sev several figures, including Trump himself and the Trump administration, said they were not going to willingly depart office even if they lost the election uh, in 2020. So to what lengths will the Republican Party and Republican Party supporters go to maintain their control over the American political machinery, the American economic machinery? This book, in some sense, is a projection of what a beleaguered white minority will do. It will go to such great lengths that it will destroy the country in order to save the country. And of course, we're familiar with what U.S. governments have done in the past to save other countries by destroying them, obviously Vietnam, but its own country? Republicans or the beleaguered white minority would destroy its own country? Well, it wouldn't do so. That wouldn't be its ambition, but that would be the consequence of its policies. Well, that's the disease of empires, Thucydides says, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself, destroying the demos. Um, you write, I made the mistake of thinking that climate change was out there already, as Julian West, like avian flu or nuclear weapons, a potential vector of future destruction rather than a fundamental disorder at the heart of the modern system. In fact, climate change was re-engineering the very DNA of the global order. Water wars helped split China apart. Energy conflicts remapped the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa. Arable land became so precious that several rich agricultural regions, Brazil, Java, and Indonesia, secured their independence in order to fence off the territory. We're also watching exactly that phenomena. Yeah. I, I should note that, you know, the, the excerpts you're reading suggest that this is a, a manifesto rather than a novel. And that, and that has been an, an interesting tension, you know, within the book itself, because— 
here's a guy, Julian West, who has a lot to say. I mean, this he is trying to, he has an ax to grind. He is trying to demonstrate that the thesis that he made in 2020 in his monograph was correct. And so he's kind of revisiting this and explaining himself once again. He is, of course, an unreliable narrator, as we discover through the, through the footnotes. Uh, and the tension in the book, in some senses, well, if he's unreliable about his own personal history, is he unreliable about everything else as well? So there are some suggestions that, well, maybe his analysis wasn't entirely correct. So that's a that's a challenge. But what you've read, yes, I, I would subscribe to that um, as the author of the book. Um, climate change has proven to be a symptom rather than, you know, a... Uh, the 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 problem itself a symptom of frankly the the growth mechanism that we've all subscribed to as part of a variety of different ideologies i mean growth at all costs was as much part of the dna of capitalism uh, as it was of communism of communism as it was of capitalism uh, it is the natural kind of uh, result of digging up every mineral, mining every possible energy source, uh, uh, unleashing every entrepreneur to do whatever he or she wants. Well, fracking would be a perfect example. Exactly. Uh, climate change is just one of the symptoms of this pernicious uh, trajectory uh, embedded in our economic ideologies. Um, you know, there are plenty of others, air pollution, um, the destruction of communities. Uh, and I lay them out in this book to understand that splinterlands, the splintering of countries, of communities, is not simply the, the natural kind of result of nationalism, of extreme nationalism, uh, that we can blame it on, say, the Le Pens of this world, uh, the Victor Orbans of the world. Yes, they are the agents, perhaps, but there's something more fundamental going on that's that's producing this splintering that we see in our midst today. I mean, we don't have to wait until 2050 or 2025 to see this splintering. Uh, and uh, these mechanisms, these mechanisms uh, implicit in our economic and political organization uh, are what are, is driving uh, people to secede from societies, from societies to secede from larger organizations, larger organizations to secede from states, states to secede from the EU, et cetera, et cetera. Well, great. That, I mean, as you point out, and it's in the title, the breakdown's nonlinear. And I think that's what you get completely. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.